Hey guys, it's Mike here. Before we get started with this week's episode, I had two warnings I just wanted to give you a heads up about. One, this episode features a lot of bad language. So if you have little ones that usually listen with you, now is the time to scooch them out of the room before you press play. Number two warning, there's a lot of spoilers about WandaVision in this episode. It comes up a bunch, it makes a lot of sense in the episode, but if you don't want to be spoiled for WandaVision, you need to pause this episode now so we don't ruin it for you. Go watch WandaVision on Disney+, and then come back and listen to us talk about 2003's Bad Santa. Hope you enjoy the episode. Pod Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year-round? Well, do we have a podcast for you. Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas Podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week 10 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about 2003's Bad Santa, a film not meant for everyone in the family. (laughs) This one is a real twist on a Christmas movie, and, and twist I put in the biggest of boldest faces. We do have to put out a disclaimer to anyone listening that this will be an R rated podcast because there is no way to talk about this movie and not get very R rated. And we will do our best to censor the language as much as possible, and we will not be playing any clips from the movie, so you don't have to worry about the little ones hearing that. But just the subject matter, it's impossible to talk about this movie and its subject matter without discussing things that little kids shouldn't hear. So just turn this one off if you've got kids around. Just Go just listen go to our this. Charlie Brown episode again. Go listen to last week's... This is adults. This is 18+. plus. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so having said that, holy fucking shit, Mike, this one was disturbing and crazy. Caroline. Mike. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna say who this movie was written by, and and we'll play a little word association here and see if it comes if see see if you do the right word association with these two guys. Oh, this goodness. movie okay. uh, uh, Bad Santa is based on this is is a screenplay written by Glenn Facara and John Riqua. Do those two names ring a bell to you? They do not. People, uh, little ones, if, if God forsakes, you're, you're, you're still listening to this, may know them as the people behind the Cats and Dogs movies, the animated series of Cats and Dogs films. Uh, wow. Family-friendly. Uh, fair, they wrote the screenplay for that. Caroline, Glenn Fakara and John Riqua are important to pod clubhouse because they were not only the people producers behind next fox's next which we covered here they are the guys behind this is us <laughs> let that sink in it's like they lost their minds for this one i don't i don't let get it. well so then in. Where do the Coens come in and the Weinsteins? Okay, so Ethan and Joel Cohen actually developed this idea. Glenn Ficarra and John Riqua go to the Cohen brothers and say, we want to write a movie that you guys direct. And the Cohen brothers say to them, we only direct the movies that we write. We don't direct other people's written work. But... We will produce this movie that we've been kicking around. If you want to write it, we'll be producers on it. It's about a Santa, but not like a Santa you ever knew before. This Santa is going to be disgusting and an alcoholic and a nymphomaniac. Lack very identifiable traits that identify him as a human being and not (laughs) not a, a deranged, unhinged animal. Maybe one that has rabies and has gone feral. Wow. Okay. Okay. I may have paraphrased most of that, but that's the idea. The Coen brothers, <laughs> would, they don't, they didn't want to direct something that someone else wrote, but they did have this idea. So the, 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 the idea of Bad Santa comes from the Coen brothers and they stay on as uh, producers. So I actually read that the idea was a one sentence. It's about a bad Santa who changes. 
That's that was the one sentence. One version I read was definitely involved the alcoholic Santa and and that they wanted it to be raunchy. You know, interesting though, because the alcoholic Santa has made his little way into our world with Elf, where we had the guy who was like mm-hmm. totally a mess, and we had it on Miracle on 34th Street. So I was like, okay, we have this like trope of this, you know, completely messed up Santa. Why is that a thing? Is it because the pressure of the holiday, I, I think, and then let me know if what you think of this. Christmas is a time that a lot of people struggle. It is, is, I mean, for as happy and jolly a time of the year, there are a lot of people who suffer from depression. And, and if you suffer from depression, Christmas can be a really tough time for you. It, it is a time of the year that sees really big spikes in suicide rates. It, it sees spikes uh, in dangerous behavior like drug use and alcoholism. When you combine that with the pressure that a store Santa or a mall Santa or a Thanksgiving Day parade Santa feel with having to listen to kids, hundreds of kids a day for, you know, a month or a month or more. Yeah. You know, the same way that you to drink the same way that air traffic (laughs) controllers uh, have such a high rate of alcoholism and lawyers have such a high rate of alcoholism because of the professional pressures of their job. I wonder if there is something to the psychology of being a Santa of playing a Santa that will literally drive you to drink. It must be because, I mean, none of us are shocked when we see it, right? I mean, not even in 34th Street. Think about how many things they had to, like, try to not do back then. And they were showing it, you know, as if, like, it's so common. It's so universal that any of us would understand. Oh, of course the hired Santa would be drunk. We totally get that. We almost expect it, right? If Unless it's going to be a Kris Kringle-like figure, you almost expect the Santa to be damaged and drunk and and uh, and, a, and a bit of a, 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 a Neanderthal. Maybe it's some idea that like who can only have this job for like six weeks. You almost have to be somebody who you don't have a career and like you're not you're just kind of bumping around life. Right. So mm-hmm. you kind of have your own challenges, I guess, going on that you only are going to come and be employed. Now, maybe some retiree old grandpa Santa's like you say that that's like the ones you kind of want to get. But some of these. Mm. And maybe those retired Grandpa Santas can't handle all the getting peed on and all that stuff that happens. Well, this Santa doesn't have to worry about that, though, because Willie Soak, he pees on himself quite frequently. (laughs) I don't know that he can actually tell the difference of when a child pees on him. Uh, I I don't know that he can tell the difference when a child sneezes on him, for he has so much disgusting food stuff on his face and alcohol and, and stains on his beard and such. This is the most disgusting creature I've ever seen. Ever. The amount of vomit, piss, snot, and just bodily fluids in general that were going on. I was eating at the beginning of this episode of this episode. I was eating at the beginning of this movie and I seriously had to like put my plate to the side. And really, I kind of did the horror movie, like look between my my fingers during all of the yellow snot coming out of kids' noses scenes. Like I that makes me so sick to my stomach. I'm sure department store Santas see their fair share of disgusting yeah. uh, disgusting behavior because if you put en- enough kids together, you're going to see some gross stuff because kids are gross. And at, at any given time, a kid can be extremely gross. I get Marcus's disgust with him. Not that I think Mark, I think Marcus in a lot of ways is the worst character or the nastiest character in this movie. But uh, Willie is by far the grossest, most vile, uh, just physically to watch uh, specimen of a human being I think I've ever seen. So I get why Marcus is so grossed out by him constantly. The three Bs. It's more booze, more bullshit, and more butt-fucking. I mean, this is what Marcus is dealing with year in and year out. So Glenn Ficarra and John Rico, they're like, you Cohen brothers, we worship you guys. They turn out the grossest script that they can think of. Okay, they turn it into the Cohen brothers. The Cohen brothers are like, okay, pretty gross, but we're going to do an uncredited rewrite of the script and really punch up the nasty jokes. So if you were to say originally, Willie would say, yeah, I'm Santa Claus. Now the Coen brothers are going to take it and say, yeah, I'm fucking Santa Claus. Who the fuck are you? That's the Coen brothers contribution to the screenplay. Them and the director of the movie, Terry Zwykoff, all three of them have an uncredited rewrite of this movie. They, they shop this movie to Universal and a couple of the other big studios. Uh, I think it's working title films both of them reject it for being 
coarse and disgusting and over-the-top offensive. So Dimension Films, Harvey Weinstein, uh, the Weinstein Brothers company, Miramax, picks it up because... Of course, it's the exact kind of movie that someone like Harvey Weinstein is going to be into, as it turns out. And Mm. that's how this becomes a Miramax movie. So there you go. All right. So let's get into our two main characters. We have Willie and we have Marcus because, you know, I was thinking about this because I'm going to tell you, Mike, I (laughs) was having some pretty horrible kiss, kiss, bang, bang moment uh, Mm. flashbacks there when I was sitting there and I was like, what have I gotten myself into? I just don't know about this movie. So I had to start crafting an entire narrative in my brain that they really didn't go into, but I just had to, where it was like, okay, what if you had taken the wet bandits from Home Alone and you had let them tell the story from their POVs and you like ramped them up, basically? If I could look at it like that, and and they, they would have sworn had it not been a Christmas movie. We talked a lot about how Joe Pesci wanted to swear like crazy. So I could kind of put them in those two roles and then just like turn the dial like really, really far. Mm -hmm. And it started to have more structure as a movie for me. The premise is simple. These two con men work together at Christmas time. They have a very slick operation in there trying where they turn off the alarm and they get the money out of the safe. And then I love Marcus doing all of his shopping for his wife. Love that. That was probably one of the funniest parts to me. That whole setup, it works for me. I like the premise. That that wasn't any issue I had with it. In fact, I kind of wanted to know more about it. I wanted to know how they developed this little slick operation. I wanted to know how they met each other. I wanted to know like a lot about them that I don't feel like we ever got. No, and you'll never get because that, I mean, so I, I just don't think that was the movie that Zweikoff wanted to tell. I don't think that's the movie the Coen brothers wanted to tell because whenever they try to put Whenever the studio interfered, and the studio interfered a bunch in this movie, much to Zweikoff's chagrin, uh, so Zweikoff's big issue with the with the studio was that it tried to humanize the movie. It tried to make it a little more palatable to a wider audience, and that's where you're going to get things like backstory and motivation. Because I agree with you, the premise of the movie is actually pretty genius. Uh, uh, an elf and his Santa, you know, move around the country. They get in their conmen. They get in. They work the crowd. They get in with the store security. They figure out how it all works. They loot the place and they run. That's a great premise for a movie. Then you get the Bernie Mac character who wants a cut of the deal. You have the bumbling uh, store manager, the John Ritter character. God, I love John Ritter. I miss him so much. You have his character. Uh, the the bones are there for a fun movie that is palatable to a wider audience that doesn't need to be so crass can still be r-rated can still be fun but but feel like it makes more sense see and i'm gonna add that i don't understand why you can't be raunchy and you can't be crazy and you can't be all the things it is without a little bit more substance like i think they could have added that in Almost with no problem. They had several scenes where Marcus and Willie were walking in the parking lot where all they would do is say, like, fuck you, no, fuck you, no, fuck you, no, fuck you for like five minutes. But that's a real frat when, boy humor, though. That's yeah, what that's the level of frat boy humor, though. That's, that's what they're a, going for. It's OK, but it's repetitive in terms of like how many times we see that parking lot scene. We see it a bunch of times when they're either arriving or they're leaving. One of those times they could have said you know, I should have left you back and blah, blah, blah. When we first met, you know, like things that you could have just spit out little comments here or there that would have added a little bit of layers to these people. I understand we're not supposed to give a shit about them at all. That's difficult as a movie watcher though, because I I want to care about somebody. In a movie that uses the F word in the theatrical cut 150 times, and then in the director's cut, which is the version that you and I saw, uses the F word 170 times. It uses the S word more than 73 times in just a theatrical cut alone. When that's how you're filling it up and you're going to that well constantly, you squeeze out all of the room, though, for substance, though. I I know it sounds like I didn't like this movie. I found this movie. I saw this movie in 2003 and laughed my ass off. I saw it. I've seen it multiple times. It's probably my favorite Billy Bob Thornton movie. I like this movie. I think it's very funny. I found it less funny watching it now because of the context in which I'm watching it. So my, my mind frame was Christmas movie and, and Christmas themes. And so I liked it less, but I still laughed. I laughed a bunch because 
I'm a guy, and I find potty humor funny. I find frat boy humor funny, though it did grate on me in a way that it didn't some 20 years ago or 18 years ago. Here's one of the things. At that time, we would have both been in our very young 20s, no kids. And so I think that we are viewing the entire thing differently. You know, we are looking at it as like checking out the hot asses in the mall. Hilarious. We're ch- we're laughing at the hot tub, the grandma, all the different things that are happening. It's all hilarious. I think it's very different when we have kids and we're grown adults and we're looking at it more like who is watching out for Thurman and like there's a little bit more empathy for that kiddo, you know, actual concern. And, you know, there's just more to it. And then I, I'm even like, Lauren Graham, Sue, like you are a friggin' mess for me. And what I couldn't understand is I'm a huge Gilmore Girls fan. This is smack in the middle of the run of Gilmore Girls. I was like thinking, is this before it happened? Is this after it happened? I'm like, no way. In 1999, I'm definitely watching Gilmore Girls. No, in 2003, I'm definitely watching. It doesn't until 2007. So for me, I'm like, what in the world? What screw went so loose for her that she was like, I'm going to go do this for a while. She said in her audition, she had to hump a chair in order to get this. I was like, you are, wow. Like, this is this is different. And I'm going to take a little bit of umbrage with you. This is not guy humor necessarily. I say the F word probably a hundred times in a week. I don't have any issue with the F word. And it doesn't turn me off. But I don't understand why you couldn't have given information with the F word. <laughs> Just yelling the F word and that's it. That's the difference, though. But what that I'm saying is, kind of like, I'm, wah, I'm, using, wah. I'm using frat boy as a genre, though, where you can have you can watch three scenes of him piss himself where he's puking in between it, and that's all you need. That is grade A. Take my money. Ninety one minutes of that. Thank you. Please, may I have another? That's what this genre is. I'm saying that, and and in 2003, that was probably enough for me. I'm sure even then I was like wow, that's a pretty thin movie because it spends so much time just being gross. Uh, again, and I think there's a difference between raunchy and gross. I think I think raunchy is fine and can be heavy, deep substance and good substance and, and, and taste like a meaty meal. This is gross. This is beyond raunch. This is raunch and... And a heavy dose of of bodily fluids thrown on top of it. Uh, that, so that's that's the genre. What you're talking about is not what this movie is. This what you're talking about is what you would like to make this movie more palatable. The raunch plus substance. But that this is a genre unto its own. Though this is Porky's. This is Revenge of the Nerds movies. This this is this is that very kind of special. This is like a throwback to that very eighties horny kind of movie. Okay. Don't look for the the depth and the substance. Uh, don't be fooled by him trying to get a bloody pink elephant to the kid at the end. That's all thin veneer for just shit, par, uh, puke, and piss jokes. And the F word said a whole bunch. <laughs> well, let's talk about casting, though, because... Super fun Christmas. Billy, Billy, I know. Hey, kids. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton... It embodies this role so well, it's hard to imagine other people even being considered for him. And yet they did. I was so surprised that they said that he was actually drunk some of the days, like on set. Like, this is how he played it. He just came in drunk. Most of us remember old Billy Bob with like Angelina Jolie and like where they both had like those like pendants with like each other's blood in it and stuff. Like he was such a weirdo that you're right. It was like, okay, you're just walking on set and playing this guy. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's nothing different about you. I think this is exactly how you'd be if we hired you as a mall Santa. So this is Billy Bob Thornton himself on getting drunk for the movie and and like the escalator scene where he's crawling off the escalator he was really drunk he had drank like three bottles of red wine i think i read and and some additional alcohol on top of that before filming that scene he goes i've traditionally played really extreme characters and even in a comedy if you're going to play a guy like this you can't be sort of drunk you know and i wasn't sort of drunk said thornton you have to go completely into it i love children i'm crazy about them but i had to ignore that fact and play the part so he went very method. I mean, that that's the style of acting that he's talking about here that he employed. He was, you know, I'm playing a drunk, disgusting human being. So for the shoot of the movie, I'm going to be a drunk, disgusting human being. And, and I think that's perfect. But yeah, you think about Bill Murray or Jack Nicholson, who are the two people that were considered for the movie. James Gandolfini 
also uh, who's popping at this point in time with the Sopranos, that's who actually the Coen brothers had in mind when they were thinking about this movie. See, and that makes sense to me because the whole F word vibe, I think that I lean into that gangstery feel, you know, like I wanted to lean more into con man, not pervert. Which is like totally different in terms of just like, like you said, like the frat boy, gross, whatever. And hey, I don't care. I couldn't have laughed harder at the line when he says, I turned a corner and he goes, what are you fucking the, in the petite section now? I couldn't have laughed harder at that line. Like none of this stuff turns me off. And, and to me, doesn't have to be teenage boy humor. Like that's just funny to me. But <laughs> there's just parts of this where I'm like, dude, like. Ah, I want more. I, I wanted I wanted them to even work the camera better, the edits better. I wanted like something to to actually make the movie gel more. Well, I've, so there's some issues with that, though, right? So Terry Zwykoff is a pretty no name director at this point and remains so afterwards. Like he had directed Ghost World. I think that was his larger movie, but he really doesn't go on to do anything and, and is a bit of an oddball with this. I think any of that level of sophistication was probably out of his range. Though Coen brothers could have done something actually probably really interesting and, and substantive with this because they can make, they make substantive films that are also funny and bizarre and odd. Uh, wrong, wrong tools <laughs> for, right. uh, for this, uh, for this project. Well, and specifically to like the whole concept of like method acting and getting drunk in order to play a drunk, I kind of want to say, um, actually, if you're playing to an audience, that drunk has to look different. I thought that his drunk, like especially in that scene where he's beating up the donkeys, the scene you're talking about coming up the escalator and all that. I felt like either they it should have been shot differently where you kind of like understood better of him looking up at that donkey's face and like him getting like pissed at that donkey kind of feeling. I know it all sounds silly, but it's like small moments like that just fell flat. Like there was just a plastic donkey and his regular old face. And then he starts beating it. There wasn't any moment of like where he crinkles his face and is like, you know what? Fuck you donkey. None of that happened. Like he didn't actually act. You know what I mean? Like he just was drunk. Like it was yeah. more like a documentary of a drunk man, right. which isn't as interesting as a man acting drunk in a scene and actually having emotion and stuff involved with it. He's just kind of deadened. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. And, and, you know, people, there are people, there are a lot of people who are nasty drunks, who, who when they drink and they get drunk, they get very drunk, naturally prone towards violence and explosive violence. And, and maybe there's no discernible reason. Man, what is his deal? Like, why is it just because he's just so sick of having to be a Santa and having to put up with these kids? Well, you could tell at the very beginning, the first theme that I wrote down was the loneliness that he felt when he was sitting in the bar at the very beginning scene and he's watching all these people. There was a real sense of like lack of connection with humans, you know, and he has the he has the little line about, you know, Mrs. Claus and sleeping with Mrs. Claus's sister and different different little things where clearly shit went down at home right there was a wife there was a life something was happening but for him i just think that all he smells like is just walking loneliness so because that loneliness thankfully has come up in other episodes that we've done for this like we've talked about it even in home alone of like you know old man marley and stuff like that that part i think actually held true to the holidays yeah, so I read in a couple different places, and and it it stuck with me both versions of this sentiment, and and I think it rings true, and I think it's what saves it as a Christmas movie is that this is not a Christmas, this is not a family Christmas movie, this is not your Elf, this is not your uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, this is you know this is a Christmas movie for the pessimists, this is a Christmas movie for the Grinches, for those that don't necessarily think of Christmas as the most wonderful time of the year this is your movie this is your time to shine and celebrate the season and whether you want to trump it up in your head and and say it's it's him cutting through the bullshit of the fake sentimentality of the season and the commercialism of it all i mean i think charlie brown christmas handled anti-commercialism of christmas in a in a in a better way <laughs> but you can see where they're going with this right that oh, yeah i mean that moment at the end when you know willie looks at at both uh, Lois and and Marcus and is like, do you really need that stuff? Do you actually need all that stuff? I mean, if that wasn't the the moment where we we're trying to have like a real look into commercialism and like, do you really need to be doing this? 
I don't know what was. I mean, that is as effective as any other Christmas movie we've seen. Yeah, for sure. And there's a little bit of it too when he's when uh, he, we're hearing the voiceover of the letter that he sends uh, Thurman Merman. Uh, <laughs> he, he's talking about, "I hope you don't mind all the blood on the elephant, but to be fair, you gave me a present that was covered in blood too." So you know, yes. you know, I guess we're kind of even. <laughs> it was the same idea. It was this idea of it's the thought that counts and not the gift necessarily itself, which is a diatribe I went on in a Charlie Brown Christmas. This is that's the that's the idea of the gift cards versus something thoughtful. No matter what the price tag is. Can we just have a moment where we say what a missed opportunity with that wooden pickle? There was about a thousand jokes that could have been made, especially given Lauren Graham laying on her back, like right. And they're like making out and everything. And then he's given this wooden pickle. There was like a million jokes and they just edit cut away. Like nothing, nothing about it. It was like, really? <laughs> okay. Like, boy, did you miss the raunch that could have been had? The movie walks an oddly fine line, though, when the kid is involved. Oh, it didn't have to be in front of the kid, but the kid walks out and she says, oh, that was so sweet, blah, blah, blah. A thousand hilarious lines could be written for that moment. He's holding a wooden pickle. Come on. Terry Zykoff wrote this because he didn't like the theatrical cut of the movie. He only when he actually screened this movie, he actually screened his own version. What what would become the director's cut of the movie Uh, in an interview afterwards? He said the following. The studio wanted to mess with it and make it more mainstream and pour some fake sentiment on it for the people that stumble around the mall. This is the movie's director. Go to Target someday and look at who your target audience is. Look at the people who are out there going to films and you realize that you're totally fucked and you don't want to do anything these people like. But that director's cut is exactly the script I got. I wanted to protect the script. I like the writers a lot. I like writers a lot. It was a lot darker. I think they missed opportunities to be wrong. I think that they cut sex scenes short. I think they didn't show enough sass. I think that they could have done more. I think we could have had an additional dressing room scene. I think there was lots that could have been had if that's where we were going. It's like it was like the whole thing was thin, even the raunch, you know? Well, if that's what you're looking for, I have good news for you. Because <laughs> we watch do. we watch a director's cut, which is three minutes shorter than the theatrical cut. The unrated version of this movie is actually ten minutes longer, and it's mostly or a lot of it is extended sex scenes. Including the, uh, I think there's the hot tub sex scene is extended. And I think the big and tall woman dressing room scene (laughs) is also extended. And she ain't going to shit right for a week. So there you go. Many of them are not apparently Opal either. (laughs) Octavia Spencer? Hello? Octavia Spencer. I thought that we were getting fucked in the ass by Billy Bob Thornton. Good Lord. I'm. <laughs> there were so many little moments like that. Like I felt that way about Alex Borstein when she was like right at the very beginning. How wild that she's in this movie. I know. For you guys who don't know, she's like the original Suki from Gilmore Girls and then turned out to become a couple different characters actually from that point in there. So so funny to see her like in this with again Lauren Graham. Like, what? Let let's stay on this theme though for the the raunching down of the movie that you're talking mm. about. Because this is Zweikoff giving another interview talking about how the Coen brothers didn't like the theatrical cut either. Zweikoff says in an interview, at one point, the Weinsteins asked them to watch a cut that the Weinsteins had done that made it much more mainstream. They had added a bunch of scenes, some of which I refused to film, and they cut them in and the Coen brothers watched it. They said, the Coen brothers, well, you tried to make this film into American Pie and now it's a piece of shit. That was their response, and they got into a heated argument with the Weinsteins that ended with everyone saying, fuck you, at each other. Well, that sounds like the writers who wrote the dialogue. (laughs) Do you know what the two scenes are that they added? And that Zweikoff refused to shoot, and so they actually, the studio actually hired Todd Phillips, the director Todd Phillips, to go out and shoot two additional scenes that are added. No, tell me, what are they? The advent scene, which you'll notice is not in the director's cut that we watched. Okay. The scene where... Uh, uh, the the kid learns how to fight bullies, which is also not in a director's cut. The scene where Willie goes and beats up the bullies is in the scene, is in the movie. But there is right. a scene in the director's cut. 
I realize you haven't seen this movie before, so I'm saying these as as if these are things that you know. So there's a scene. There are two scenes in the original movie where uh, the kid asks Billy Bob or S. Willie where the advent calendar is because every year, you know, before Mama went to go with the to, with the talking walnut and Joseph, you know, in heaven. What is the talking walnut? I don't know what the fucking talking walnut is. It was driving me crazy. <laughs> I was hoping you would know. I've never heard such a thing in my life. It's, I only have two pages of notes taken on this movie because not a lot of notes needed to be taken for this movie. Talking Walnut was a significant underline with asterisks around it. I have never heard of such a crazy thing. That's very funny. Anyway, so so they start doing the advent calendar. I'm doing this from memory because, again, this wasn't a theatrical cut. So Billy Bob goes and gets an advent calendar or ha- somehow there's an advent calendar. Basically, it's an interactive calendar uh, of, of 24 days that helps kids count down to Christmas. And each day there's like a little door. It's like a perforated door. And when you open it, there's like a little tiny treat inside there. Maybe it's like a little uh, a, like a jelly bean or some kind of like little candy or some kind of little toy, like very small. In a drunken haze, Billy Bob destroys the kid's advent calendar, wakes up, realizes what he has done, and then goes and repairs the advent calendar. He stuffs like he like tapes it all back together. It looks like an animal mauled it and then an animal tried to repair the thing, but he stuffs it with like a Tylenol um uh, you know uh, some other kind of pill like you know like really like the kinds of stuff that willie soak would have and think you know i could put this and give this to a kid kind of thing and that's so the advent weird. scene but it's part of the willie willie is becoming a, a better person that he took the time to try and fix this and it's like further towards the bond of him and the kid then there's another scene where he's yelling at the kid and he says what happened to your black eye he teaches him how to fight essentially and there's this whole scene where he he tries to teach uh the kid how to fight they cut that out of the both of those scenes out of the theatrical cut of the director's cut and then it cuts right to billy bob just whooping the ass of the bullies which was also in the in the theatrical cut of the movie anyway so yeah so the studio again went and hired a director because they felt that they needed to reinforce the third act arc of of willie becoming a better person the coen brothers hated it and so did Zwykoff. Hated it. Hated, hated, hated it because the, for them, it was, it was a, a raunching down. It was, uh, it was, uh, making it more family friendly kind of movie that the idea that you needed to have some kind of redemption arc or some kind of happy ending ish thing set up there for, for Willie. But the director's cut that we watched, I mean, if it had the same ending, which it appears to have had, it does. Then I, I mean, Honestly, it sounds like what we're talking about. Like, where's the substance? Where's the, where's the whatever? And I get it. I totally get it. It's just supposed to be strung together F words. But that's not movie making. And that's never been movie making. That's never been storytelling. And this is a perfectly good story to tell. The disenfranchised, the Santa fetish girl. These are real people that exist that can have a story and can be interesting. I, I just I just felt like it was a missed opportunity, honestly. Well, the two scenes that I just described to you, did they do they sound like the kind of scenes that would have made you appreciate? Are they the kinds of scenes that would have made you identify with the arc and made it more sense made it make more sense to you to buy Willie as being this person who would risk getting eight bullets in his back to deliver this <laughs> elephant? I actually didn't need those two scenes. I think the fact that I saw him go and beat up the kids, I saw his face when he saw the black eye and he actually showed, you could see the wave of like wanting to take care of this kid hit him. You know, like he was like, that's it. Like, this is too much. So I didn't need to see him teach him how to fight. And the advent calendar, I mean, it's interesting, but that that house and that family and everything with the kiddo was so off that, like, I don't know. I mean, it would have seemed like, really? You would have had, like, a traditional advent calendar? I find that hard to believe. The, uh, well, but uh, heavy Christian th- theming going on in that family, right? Think about how the kid understands where his... I don't know. The little walnut. Come on. The talking walnut. Yeah. But I mean, the talking walnut, though, is hanging out with all of the other figures from the manger scene. Sure, But it's like stuff you could just see like at the mall, like nativity little thing or whatever. So I don't know. I'm questioning. But here's the funny thing. I did look up the talking walnut. John Ritter actually commented on it in an interview and said it was just something that was made up. That was funny. He equated it to Moses in the burning bush. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. He said, there's just something funny that made everyone laugh. And like Billy Bob didn't question it when the kid said it. So they just like kept it in. Thought it was funny. Let's talk about Thank the kid. You. Let's talk about the kid for a second, because the Coen brothers, just like they had imagined Gandolfini, which I agree with you on Gandolfini having the cursing. But I think there's a little I think it would have been a little too sinister violent, whereas I think Willie is more alcoholic violent. I think yeah. Dennis Leary is, yes. was one of the people. He's a good contender for this role. He could have done it. But Bill Murray also, though, because Bill Murray from the 80s often played versions of this. See, but not the ranch, not to this level. Not well, you got stripes, and, and you have stripes, nope. and you have Caddyshack and stuff, nope. and, and those are nope. those are not fuck me, Santa, and no, no, no. That's it's too far. Pissing himself and stuff like no, yeah, it's pissing too himself. far. Maybe, like, maybe the sex stuff, too but too far, too far. But, I mean, interestingly, so Bill Murray actually doesn't do the movie because he's off in Japan filming Lost in Translation, which Good eventually, which would go on to beat. Bad Santa and Billy Bob Thornton for the Golden Globe for acting that year. So, <laughs> Lost Translation, excellent movie. And the reason that uh, Jack Nicholson doesn't do it because he's off filming or he's committed to film, something's got to give. See, Nicholson, Robert De Niro, and Gandolfini all would have been far too sinister, far too whatever. The thing about Billy Bob that messes with me is that he has this ick factor about him that just comes with him. That's just him as a human like a walking std like you feel like you have to wash your hands just watching him yeah which again confuses me why sue's like let's do this except for okay we're going into the santa fetish but it just is like how 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 would any woman be interested in this guy he has got to smell like so many disgusting things i had that question written down and and i understand because it was it was uh, when she's picking him up at the bar it was where the question came from of what does someone see in someone like this, how did I frame it? I said, what attracts someone like Sue to a Willie? That was my question for you. And and she makes it clear throughout the movie that she has a Santa fetish. And yeah. in the interview... She actually explains it. She says, my dad was Jewish, my blah, blah, blah. We didn't celebrate it. We couldn't have a tree. So I have this whole thing with Santa. Like, she explained her backstory in, like, two sentences. We knew way more about Sue and her motivation. In, in that interview uh, where she humps the chair, she gives an interview where she talks about that. She goes, I just thought when she was making the decision to go for it, where she's going to hump the chair and in, in stand in for Billy Bob, she goes... She loves anything to do with Christmas. She totally doesn't see what's disgusting about this particular Santa. He fulfills a strange kind of fantasy for her. She does a good job of conveying all of that. I think so. I totally think so. I think she she is 100% into the Santa Claus persona. In a lot of ways, the most developed character in this movie. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, Lauren Graham never looked better in any year of the Gilmore Girls than she does in this movie. She is a stunning knockout in this film. She is very pretty. And she she has a, a nice, like, innocence about her in a way that feels, again, just like such a juxtaposition to his griminess. Let's talk about the kids, Thurman Merman. So mm-hmm. this was, uh, there were a couple of casting decisions that got Zwykoff in trouble with the Coen brothers. The Coen brothers, like they envisioned Gandolfini, uh, Gandolfini for the role of Willie, they had two different people in mind for the kid, for Thurman and for Marcus, neither of which Zwykoff went with, both of which got Zwykoff in trouble with the Coen brothers. They wanted Angus T. Jones to play the role of Thurman Merman. Angus T. Jones goes on to make Two and a Half Men. He is the kid from Two and a Half Men, so he ends up having a fantastic career doing that role. What an interesting little take, though, it would have been with him in the role, if if you're familiar with him from Two and a Half Men. Very much. Uh, Very similar body build. Yeah, and I don't think it would have been that outlandish. Like, I don't know what they're hating on that choice so much, but I, I don't think it would have been that crazy. I mean, he has the, an obnoxious side to him for sure. And when he was little, they didn't show him quite so little as this guy is really. I don't know. I mean, he could have been disgusting easily. Well, no. Well, the Coen brothers wanted Angus T. Jones, and yeah. as Wyckoff didn't, he said that Brett Kelly, uh, who's the actor who plays the kid, Thurman, uh, was the right choice. He was the funny one. Actually, it's Billy Bob who comes in uh, and says, no, the kid, I read with him when I auditioned for the when I auditioned for the part. He's the one. He's the funny character. He's the one you want. And so the Coen brothers swallowed their, their argument and moved on from it. There's an oddness about how 
how Brett Kelly looks, mm-hmm. how he acts, how he carries himself, the way he can walk around with the wedgie, with the underwear sticking up. It takes a really specific kind of kid to pull that off and make your heart just melt and break for him. But also right. be annoyed by him equally often. <laughs> right, right. I agree with you. There, he has a very specific look about him. His eyes are like too close together. And he's like super tight curly hair. Everything about him seems like something is like awry with this little boy. And he has a blankness about him. Yes. Like when he would say things and then he would just be so blank, like as if he wasn't taking in anything around him mm-hmm. at all. And then he would just say something weird and outlandish that we were like, what is happening right now? It's like he never heard anything Billy Bob said. Also heard all of it, though. And the scene, yeah. the scene where uh, she where he walks in after they finish having sex and Lauren Graham's laying on the ground after he's done and he leaves and he says, good night, Santa's sister. So he heard everything. He took it all in and yet acted as if none of it registered with him because he was so dogged in his own questions. The constant asking about the reindeer, uh, the elves, all those questions. The part that really got to me where that was like really, really just obvious, obviously, that he says when they're in the kitchen and they're doing the report card and, and he says, I'm not Santa. And he's like, I know you're not Santa. Like it's this, this is like a non-conversation. I know you're not Santa, but like, I've created this illusion for myself to get through the holidays because I live with my completely checked out grandmother and there's no one here to take care of me. I haven't had presents in two years. I don't know what's going on in this world. So I've created, it's almost a WandaVision sitch where he's like, I've created a situation where I want you to be Santa. I want this situation. So I'm just going for it. I was a fat little kid and watching him come off the bus in those shorts that are so high and walking with the shirt that is just pulled down. It it was, it hit me so hard because it was so, it was such a, a specific kind of memory of my own life. I was equally repulsed by him but also drawn to him in a way because you kind of want to help him right as like an adult now don't you want to be like oh honey those shorts are too small for you and like those shoes make you look like like they they look uncomfortable for you like you want to help him he's so pathetic but then it's a little charlie brownish like he's got this little bit of like you are so pathetic in so many different ways and then also you have this innocence about you where i'm and also this part where i want to kind of choke you out because you're so annoying but you're also extremely dogged and determined like it, it yeah takes, it hung takes, out man yeah it takes a certain kind of kid to put up with all of willie's nonsense and still be there no matter how checked out or blank or how committed to the the westview wandavision illusion you want to create for yourself <laughs> without ever breaking and you have to imagine even for someone like the kid like thurman willie had to have been pushing even his patience uh, just with what, you know, he kind of went through. But it was for me in the kitchen in the scene you're talking about where he wants just validation about how he did good in school because he went from all C's in the first quarter to all C's except for one B in mm-hmm. the second quarter. And doesn't that mean that I should get presents this year kind of thing? It was so sad because kids need validation. Kids need to be told sometimes, hey, you're doing a good job. Hey, I'm proud of you. And he's so so desperately seeking it, even if he has to get it from this disgusting, drunk, fake Santa, that's where he's going to get it from. You know, that's the most stable, responsible adult in his life. Yeah. And I just the more that I think about it, the more that I just think he just created that whole illusion, like for his own little self, like he just committed to it. Like this is the person Santa is supposed to take care of kids. The end. I I, obviously I know. And I kind of love that he broke and was like, I know, like Mm -hmm. I know. And I know, and I'm a dipshit and all that stuff that he says, like, I love it that he like finally just says it because it makes you realize like, no, he's not blank. He is somebody who is who needs He's this coping. to be a certain way. Yes. It just I feel like a Sue. Like she is just she can overlook all the grossness because she just is looking for this one fix, this one little nugget she wants out of him. And that's it. That's it. There's nothing else. Let's talk about Marcus. Let's talk about Tony Cox as Marcus as another controversial decision. This was another casting choice that Zweikoff went with Cox because, again, he felt he was just the funniest guy. The Coen brothers, interestingly, they pushed really hard for Danny Woodburn, who fans of Seinfeld would have known as Mickey Abbott. He's the guy. Mm. He's the uh, the small person from Seinfeld who played Mickey. That was who they wanted. 
there's a host of things and some of it's lore maybe some of it's real i don't know but among their complaints was uh, that they didn't think that this character the character of marcus would be black and that was a big issue for the Cohen brothers that Tony Cox, not that he was a small person, but that, that he was, that he was black. And that's a weird take for me. I, that never entered my head at all watching this movie that it was a black elf and a white Santa. I think Tony Cox plays this character of Marcus extremely well. I, I find it hard to imagine anyone else doing this role as well with all of the short people jokes in it, with all of the cursing, with equally being exasperated and disgusted by Willie, but also in your own way, in his own way, being so much worse a human being than Willie, too. I liked him very much. I think that he had the the little bit of like extra confidence and and almost like intimidation factor. Like he's the brains behind the operation. Yeah. So like I mean, and when the they have to sit down, in a lot of ways, <laughs> yeah, crazy enough. When they have to sit down and talk with Bernie Mac, and they're sitting there and they're like having to negotiate, and that was a hilarious scene. That was very funny. My when the last time he says it, when Bernie Mac goes half, and he says it in this little tiny little funny little yeah. voice, it was so funny, and also made me miss Bernie Mac as well. This was a was this a was a hard movie, movie for for that and that regard um but i think you know i know their voices too i know i know tony's voice now and i know the actor who plays mickey and guess what i like tony's voice because it's deeper and it's more gruff and gravelly yeah and kind of like aggressive like you can see him having this con man kind of persona i don't care about his stature i i just think that he brings it his personality brings it more there, there's this whole scene here between the Bernie Mac character, whose name is Jin. Not that I think they ever say that. You know, they never say the Sue very, either. Yeah, just at the very end, because they put the names up by their faces. That was the only time I realized people's names. Marcus says, in case you didn't notice, I'm a motherfucking dwarf. So unless you got a forklift handy, maybe you should lend a hand. Hmm? And then, and then Bernie Mac goes about that you're all the same. You know, you want special treatment because you're handicapped. <laughs> Marcus goes, special treatment? I'm a three foot fucking tall. I'm, I'm three foot fucking tall, you asshole. It's a matter of physics. Draw me a sketch of how I get him to the car, huh? But the best part here is they go back and forth. And this is, I mean, this is the best part of, this is one of my favorite exchanges in the movie. Bernie Mac and Tony Cox going at each other every time they did, it was gold. It was, it was the truly funniest because it was real comedy. It wasn't just mm-hmm. resting on fucks and shits and ass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was jokes in it. He goes, he's like, what'd you call me? He said, I called you a fucking guinea homo from the 15th century fucking century, you dickhead. And he goes, you should, I could stick you up my ass. Ball he goes, uh, it ain't too sore from last night. And then this Bernie Mac turns to him because he's almost offended, but also impressed at, at, at Marcus's mouth. He goes, you got some lip on you midget. And then, of course, Marcus says, yeah, well, these lips were on your wife's pussy last night, so why don't you dust that thing off once in a while, asshole? And then he storms away. It's a raunchy scene. It's so funny, though. Bernie Mac and Tony Cox always need to be in a movie together. This is actually the second movie they had done together. They had both appeared in Friday previously. So See, and I love the jokes. Like, those yeah. are jokes. Those you know, are that's jokes. Not, that's they, comedy. Right? Any other time, they could have just... If you played out as every other Billy Bob Thornton scene with Tony Cox, it would have been like, fuck you, no, 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 fuck you, leave, end scene. Not as funny as, you know, dust your wife's pussy off once in a while. That's funny, you know? When he turns, I remembered it. I knew it was coming. I knew I was going to laugh when he says, you cut some lip on you, bitch. Because that's Bernie Mac. Like, you could hear Bernie Mac. Yeah. Even me saying that, like doing extreme. a band impression. It's, it's, it, it gets high pitchy, but there's also like a soulfulness to it, too. There's like a, there's a, 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 me- a melodic feeling to it, you know? And it, I could, oh, it's so good. It's so, so good. <laughs> I love it. It was, it was excellent. Uh, I, you know, those are really the major characters. You have Lois, uh, Lauren Tom. I loved her. I thought she was so funny. And I was like, where do I know her from? Where do I know her from? And I had to go back and like look. And I was like, oh my God, she was Julie from Friends. That's so funny. That's how I know her too. But that's not where I knew her from. That was the funny thing. You know her as the character of Amy Wong, who does the voice of Amy Wong in Futurama. That's her other major credit. So, Mm -mm. But I knew her as Julie as soon as I saw it. But though she looks really different than she did as Julie in Friends, uh, you know, from 10 years before, uh, she plays uh, Ross love interest at the end of the first season beginning of the second season no i know her from the joy luck club that's what i knew her from oh okay 
There you go. So I was like, I was like, okay, yeah. And so then when I actually read that she played Julie, I was like, oh my gosh, she doesn't look anything like that that Julie face at all to me. I didn't recognize her. No, but honestly, there there's probably eight years between that role as Julie and here. So it's just funny how different she. I mean, even with like, if I was trying to picture her in my head, I was like, if you give her a haircut, she still didn't look like <laughs> Julie in my head, no. you know. And I've seen friends. A lot. <laughs> but see, okay, here's the deal. I love the relationship between Marcus and Lois. I loved their dynamic of how she goes around and does all this shopping. And the whole time she's like, just looking. The whole time she's looking. I love the part when she like, when she stands by the men's like sweater table and like, just like hip checks it into place. Those are the parts of a movie I adore. Those like small moments where they're like getting the heist little pieces together. That is the most fun. And that's why I think the movie was very successful, actually. Her watching, like, when they're sitting at lunch and watching him eat salad, and the way that they're just like, Lois and Marcus are just like, mm, mm, back and forth at each other. They worked so well together. That, I mean, I remember I was I, I said earlier that there, there are parts of Willie that don't reflect any kind of normal human behavior and, and it's just oh. animalistic the the salad eating scene yes. but but more so when marcus and lois leave him alone at the table yes. and then the mom brings the kid over the spitting of the that spitting. piece of lettuce out was oh, so sick so again sick. i was eating it's like so no <laughs> I, if you've ever been to a zoo and you saw and if you've ever seen a kid <laughs> bang on the glass of an enclosure mm. and an animal whip it head whip its head around after it's while it's eating some carcass that's yeah. what that scene looked like. <laughs> that could have been at like the Turtleback Zoo or the Central Park Zoo or, or like the Bronx Zoo in the gorilla cage. Oh yeah, I love it. If he had thrown shit at the kid, uh, his own feces, <laughs> I would not have been surprised. So again, like small little moment though, but that the Lois and and Marcus moment of actually killing Jin with the car when she was like, I should have backed up further. I needed like a better running start. Like all of those little that's funny she could have just yelled fuck 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 and we would have been like oh raunchy but it was so funny she's like oh god i should have gotten a better like that was funny and clever and like i don't know i didn't expect him to kill him so that was a big shocker to me i was like where is this movie going now uh well i mean it sets up the last act where where uh where willie's trying to use bernie mac's character Jin as a reason for him not to shoot him he's like he's already dead asshole yeah. Uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about john ritter john ritter who has the smallest part of the main cast in the movie plays the store manager bob chapesca this is this is pretty classic john ritter right kind of yeah. you know a little bumbling the the one who's a little square what'd you think here this is uh, his final uh movie appearance final feature film appearance actually this film sadly that's wild to me that that was his final one but i my most favorite moment is when he's talking with with bernie mac and he's trying to convince him that he's got to find some legal way to get him fired and he's describing the different things the fuck stick and all mm-hmm. those kind of moments and bernie mac's like fuck stick he said fuck stick that whole thing super funny Loved it. Those two together worked very well. So funny when he's talking about when he's talking about how he doesn't want people coming down here and making a cry that it was a big and tall woman. That if it was a yeah. supermodel, people would be fine with him giving her anal in the in the dressing yeah. room. But you know, he doesn't want to make a case of it that they're gonna you know call him on. They're only making a case of it because it's a big and tall woman that he's giving anal to. But the face that he makes, Sean Ritter makes, where he does this like pursed lip, like like he like bit into a lemon. And he's like. Mm! He like pulls his face back. Oh, he had a lot of Jack Tripper vibe going on in this one that I loved. And I just miss him because he he wasn't an, an annoying, you know, normally when you have the square guy, the, the square manager, you it, it's like so dorky and so nerdy that he's like obnoxious to you. But he wasn't. He was just like, I want to just I'm, I'm a manager of a department store. I'm kind of a mild mannered guy, you know, and I'm, I don't want to make waves. That's kind of his old vibe. I, I don't want to make waves. Also, I am I am disturbed by what I'm seeing here. And it is uncomfortable for me to talk about. Like I, I have crafted a life for myself where I don't have to talk about fuckstick or anal <laughs> sex in the dressing room. Yes. This all of this is making me very uncomfortable for me. The All the scenes with Bernie Mac, I thought were really funny when Bernie Mac has decided that he's going to throw in with uh the department store with bandits he's going <laughs> through all of the things and how he can't like get him on any of them 
and it, they give like rapid fire. So Bernie Mac says, you know, clean. And then John Ritter, without missing a beat, is like filling all the gaps with a, oh, oh no, nope, nope. And, and, and they're just like <laughs> shooting it down like one after another about how he can't fi- have like, grounds to fire him. Just really good comedic timing. You need a Bernie Mac and a John Ritter. You need two great comedians in order to pull that scene off and make it funny. Otherwise, it would come off as cringy or or slow or just not have the right rhythm. But these two guys are just kind of masters and both of them gone too soon. So I, Absolutely. And even even the small like idiosyncrasies of like Bernie Mac sitting there peeling those oranges all the time and like sucking on the little segments of them and kind of like taking them in and out of his mouth and stuff like there were all these little moments that it added a little layer of raunch because it was like a little bit gross. You know, it was kind of that, you know food humor kind of thing but it worked like that is the level i wanted more in the movie than you know simply pissing your pants you know like that's like okay i mean that's like as low as it gets you know Oh, it's funny that you mentioned the eating the oranges. I, I read this in IMDb's trivia facts. They say uh, throughout the film, there's actually several hints to Bernie Mac's character, Jin, having chronic constipation, that he eats oranges and that he where he's seen mixing stool softener into his drink yes. among them. Uh, that's so funny that you picked up on the oranges eating and stuff and, and that I had read this fact. And, and the I, stool I did... softener. I totally saw him stirring that in. That was I was like, what? What a weird character trait to build in. <laughs> and, you know, Bernie Mac was just like, yeah, this guy is going to be real constipated. <laughs> but I think that it adds to his like little bit of like irritability, you know, like he's not feeling a hundred percent. But no one, no one does irritable and, and yeah. grouchy, but funny better than Bertie Mac. Grouchy is a perfect word. Yes, I agree. He is uh, he is Red Fox born again. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Then just rounding out uh, the kids family, you have Cloris Leachman in an uncredited role as Granny. You hadn't seen this before. What did you think when you saw Cloris Leachman? Oh, as soon as I saw her, I was like, Cloris! <laughs> I thought it was super funny. And, you know, she played an excellent, checked out grandma i mean oh that death scene the fake the fake out death oh scene my oh my god, god. but then the, but then she hops up i'm gonna go make your sandwiches <laughs> the sandwiches is the best bit in the whole movie yes it's something my grandmother's like that every time and the way that she literally runs out of the room doesn't ask any questions who these people are but just runs out of the room to make the sandwiches oh my grandmother is exactly like that like she's totally like the second you're there she's like there's soda in the fridge but like immediately and I love I love that Thurman picks up on that trait too because then he also begins asking uh, Willie all the time if he wants sandwiches. There's this there's a scene where he, uh, he's like in his face as Billy Bob is like half passed out in bed, and he's like, "You want me to fix you a sandwich?" And Billy Bob <laughs> like drunkenly narcoleptically. I think he also might be a narcoleptic. I, that, I was diagnosing him. I think he might have some mild narcolepsy. It may just okay. be alcohol poisoning, but he sleeps too much for a normal human being. Um, he's, he's like half asleep and he says, what is it about you always wanting to fix fucking sandwiches? Really funny. Just right, a great line delivery because he's he's asleep. But he's still so thrown off and disturbed by the obsession with Granny and the kids' sandwich fixing. <laughs> it's the use of the word fixing that really makes it funny, though. It's not even that they're always offering sandwiches. It's that they're always willing to fix a sandwich or fixing sandwiches. It's really funny. Uh, yeah, I mean, then you have Ethan Phillips, who plays Roger Merman. I always, I always love a good Ethan Phillips sighting. That was funny when I saw him. Although, you know what? See, that was one of those times, too, where, like, I get it. I get it that Bernie Mac put it together in two seconds there that, like, okay, he wasn't expecting any house guests. All right, I'm starting to put this together. But that just seems so such a strange edit. You know, it was just like he was there at the at the jail and then gone. And it was like there was like literally three sentences between them. So weird. And then you have, and we already mentioned Octavia Spencer in a in a very early in her career cameo uh, playing Opal. It, it, it just it just it just funny that you know I ain't coming over there again. I ain't shit right for a week last time I was going. You know, saw your white that ass. Was funny. Yeah. Just a, See, but good. That's a funny line. That good is a on funny her, line. And, and good on them for bringing it back. Like that's comedy, right? Where you bring it back and then like that's funny. That's why. That's why it was funny is because we had just heard about it. So mm-hmm. and, it was, and that's a. That's a funny phrase ain't shit right for a week so <laughs> yeah i mean I, I guess we have to get down to the the the, the point of this podcast caroline as, yes. as we wrap up here is this a christmas movie and if so is it a good christmas movie give me give me your your best for or against being this being a christmas movie 
I am going to say this is a Christmas movie. It is made for a certain section of the pie of the population that is looking for a little bit more, of course, of an adult take, but even further than that, like a raunchier take, a kind of take on those, the, I'm going to say derelicts of society for the most part, the forgotten of society, the kids who don't have parents doing things, the, the grandmothers who nobody's paying attention to, the bartenders who have to listen to everyone's stories, you know, the mall Santas, the con men, the people who take advantage of others during the holidays. This is your movie. This is the movie that highlights your story and what you are going through during the holidays. And I think for that, it's, it is a Christmas movie. It, it does matter. It's at Christmas time because the entire premise wouldn't work unless it was. So I'm going with, it's a Christmas movie. I agree. This is a Christmas movie. It is not a mainstream for all family Christmas movie like you would expect. Uh, I think, uh, like you said, this is for a very specific segment. This is for the Grinches out there. This is for the pessimists. These are for the ones who have had enough of having to be a certain way and expected to behave a certain way just because of what time of the year it is. Like I said, this is the movie for you. It, there's an article on hiddenremote.com. This is from a couple of years ago. Uh, this in a countdown, the best Christmas movies in an article by Erin Qualley. Uh, she writes at the end here, while sugar and spice and everything nice is lovely and all the holidays aren't always so magical for everyone. The pressures of excessive shopping, endless cooking and engaging with problematic family can be enough to drive any adult up a wall. Bad Santa allows us to indulge the Grinch inside of us all while we while still enjoying a happy ending that triggers all of our warm fuzzies. Pair it with sandwiches and a strong drink or three for best results. I, I think that's a perfect summation of this movie is this is this is not you know, it's about family in a way, about a non-traditional family in a way. I mean, the the redemption arc is thinking about other people besides yourself, which is mm-hmm. what that scene is with Willie, where where he dresses down Lois and Marcus for their their you know uh, stealing all of the the stuff well beyond what they actually need, the- and the, then going that extra mile of actually setting up the, like a guardianship for sue to be there for thurman like that that extra mile right there is like he's actually making sure that 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 little boy has a little bit of family yeah so i mean there there's here to check off the the christmas movie themes boxes uh i think a big thing of this is and you hit on this also this movie doesn't work at any other time of the year. It has to be a Christmas movie. Not only the premise of the Santa and the elf, but just the idea that that the stores are crowded, the stores have a flush with cash. These yes. are places that you want to rob, and you would only rob, you wouldn't rob it during Arbor Day. See what I did there? Uh, I, did. I saw what you did there. <laughs> uh, you know, you wouldn't right. rob a department store at Arbor Day. You're going to rob a department store before it has its bank pickup at Christmas time. Uh, all of that makes sense, but also, this is when people are depressed. It's a time when people People are depressed. It's a time when people are lonely. Uh, you know, all of the problems that you may feel throughout the year for for a lot of people are magnified to willy soak like levels. Uh, right. You know, well, it, even like Thurman, though, like, like, look at him, like maybe he can deal with it. 364 that no one pays attention to him. But on Christmas morning, he wants to be noticed. He wants someone to see that he exists. And and that little thing, like that's why I say, like, yes, it is about Van Santa, but it is about the forgotten little boy and the and the forgotten grandma and the the people out there who just don't have anyone. Or the Sue's. I mean, uh, the Sue, she's Sue, right in there. Sue has a specific itch that she needs a Santa to scratch. <laughs> you know. There you go. Uh, all right. So before we come up with our actual Jingle Bell ratings, let me play you the clip for next week's movie, and then well, then maybe we'll do some fast fact trivia. What do you think about that? Yes. All right, here we go. This is our clip for next week's movie. Let me know if you know what it is. For it is plain, as can see, we're simply meant to Oh, I love this movie. I love this one. This is Nightmare Before Christmas. Nightmare Before Christmas. Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Very excited. Uh, what what a weird three-week combo this is, going from a Charlie <laughs> Brown Christmas to Bad Santa to a Nightmare Before Christmas. Absolutely, it is. All right, I want to hear your Jingle Bell ratings. Give it to me first, Mike. Go oh, on. Man, I'm giving you first? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you usually make me go first, but I'm going to let you. Go on now. <sighs> Bad Santa lovers first. I'm looking, I'm looking. (laughs) Let's see. I don't want to embarrass myself here. 
and having inconsistent ratings. I'm going to go with a seven and a half, a 7.5 on Bad Santa. 7.5 Jingle Bells from Mike on this one. I think it would have probably ranked higher when I was younger, when I originally saw this in 2003. But yeah, I'm a little bit older and a little bit less uh, less indulgent of all of the potty humor than I was. But I, I think I, th- I still think the movie is very funny. I think it's I think it's a better movie than it is a Christmas movie. But I uh, I think there's still enough here for a certain segment to to get off uh, Christmas time about. okay i'm gonna give it a six and i'll give it a six because i think it was actually a better christmas movie than it was a movie because i think as a story it's not very well done it has a lot of weird holes a lot of missed opportunities but when it comes to casting i you can't beat bernie mac john ritter i mean these people are selling it to me i love lauren graham i love lauren tom i think she does fantastics tony cox yes billy bob is disgusting but he filled those shoes perfectly same with brett kelly like ew 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 i just wanted to wipe his nose but you know what he sold it to me so i think in that in that regard the casting absolutely won me over but the absolute like inconsistencies with how it was shot the the editing the just huge like i love a comedy and and i understand good comedy too many missed opportunities in this one for me to give it any higher but actually better at christmas than some christmas movies are (laughs) and but just a bad movie i think you'd benefit from watching this movie as a movie if you had seen the theatrical version i have a feeling that the theatrical version would have sat with you better as a movie than the director's cut not that i'm saying you should go out to another world (laughs) yeah i mean if you want to go out to amazon and spend another three dollars to rent this because it's not streaming anywhere it had been streaming on netflix through the end of last year but it's taken off now or or go watch the unrated cut for the extra sex scenes but uh one or the other i think the i think the theatrical cut is probably the worst of the three cuts for this being a movie well, and we've had these conversations before. Like, like if you are going to go in certain directions, you better go there for me. Right. I thought that the fuck me Santa hot tub scene and the car scene was ridiculously short. And again, it's, it was an edit choice that seemed like, what is this? Like, you're just throwing it in. And if you're going to do that, commit to the bit, man, and just do it the right way. All these different jokes. It was just, there was too many just abandoned punchline moments that could have been so much more. Yeah, especially when you fill the gap with just more cursing or frat humor yeah. or poop humor. You know, at least make it more interesting if it's going to be perverse. Yeah, which I don't mind perverse. Go all day long. No, I don't mind perverse either. But yeah, I'd, I'd like it to have, you know, I'm the guy who, when I watch porn, like I watch porn with a plot. Like I don't want to see, I, I, like I need, I need <laughs> some plot. This is too much. <laughs> well, if I watch Christmas porn, I need Christmas porn with a plot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> too much okay you guys so this has been our coverage of bad santa this is probably one of our only r-rated christmas movies that we will be covering although i haven't seen the whole list i i don't look ahead so i try not to this has been caroline and this is mike thank you so much for listening to the 52 weeks of christmas podcast don't forget to rate review and subscribe to 52 weeks of christmas podcast at apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and if you could leave us a five-star rating that would be fantastic because as they say in the czech republic for this movie It's called Santa is a Pervert. I just thought that was a fun fact. That's why I'm saying it now. Thanks so much for (laughs) listening, guys. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.